Amen. You go ahead and turn to Matthew chapter 5. Uh, we are continuing to walk through Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, uh, and specifically the last, I guess we're in week 5-ish. I'll lose track really quick. Um, I think we're in week 5 of the Beatitudes, um, looking at Matthew chapter 5 and verse 6 today. Um, but in Matthew 5, and really Matthew 5 through 7, what we find is Jesus teaching his disciples what life in his kingdom looks like. Uh, and if you just think back, I mean, every week we've been hitting on the fact that Jesus's kingdom doesn't look a whole lot like our kingdoms. Um, it looks completely upside down compared to our kingdoms. If we just survey what Jesus is telling his disciples, they must do in order to be blessed in his kingdom. Uh, if I were to summarize it really um, simply, in the, in the first four Beatitudes, um, or the first three, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Jesus is telling his disciples over and over again that they cannot rely on themselves in his kingdom. Uh, that it's only through realizing their depth of need and their right response to Jesus in faith can they be a part of his kingdom. And then that life in his kingdom continues to be marked by something that most of us would not like to be said of us. We wouldn't like most people to say that we're meek individuals, that we're, that we're restrained or that we're, we're, we're quiet or we're shy. Or, or, but what he's really getting at last week is that we have to rely on his strength and not our own which is completely contrary to what we do in every other avenue of life. Um, everything else that we do is based off of what we can do. And, 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 we, and we don't like to be in a place of need. But outside of seeing ourselves and our desperate need of our need for Jesus and seeing his provision of who he is, we will not taste the kingdom of God. It's only through Jesus. So today we come to a, a, another beatitude or another phrase, blessed are this group of people or blessed are those who bear this characteristic. And it's in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 6. Jesus said, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. And maybe a really simple way to start today is, have you, how many of you have ever been thirsty? Like real thirsty. Like, your tongue is like glued to the top of your mouth, like, you're thirsty. And, and when you finally get water, you don't care what temperature it is, you're thirsty. I didn't ask, I didn't start us off by asking how many of you have ever been hungry, because most of us have just been bored, right? Like, most of us have not really experienced driving hunger. Like, we haven't really had Esau's hunger where we would sell our inheritance because we're that hungry. Like, maybe in a moment, it's like, well, if there's one piece of pizza left, you can have my birthright. Probably not. I've not gotten to that point. But what is hunger and thirst? If we just start, we're starting really elementary today. We're not, not going too, too heavy, too fast. Hunger and thirst. What they represent is, is very simply a daily need, or, right, or an ongoing need to eat and to drink. But hunger and thirst, and you just bear with me, you go, this is really obvious stuff. This will, this will matter. Hunger and thirst in and of themselves are not the eating and the drinking. They're the indicators that we need to eat or that we need to drink. 
But it's also, it's, you know, like, and those two needs, eating and drinking, are universal anywhere on this planet. Anywhere you go, people need to eat and they need to drink. So hunger and thirst, then, are the desire or the impulse toward eating and drinking, right? They're, the ind- they're not just the indicator, they're also the impulse. Like, when you start to get thirsty, right, it, it goes from being a little bit passive to then an active impulse of, I must find something to drink. Same way, if you get really hungry, or if you have toddlers that are always hungry, right, it's a driving impulse for food, and they're just like constantly just like cramming it in their face, right? But it's, it's the indicator, it's the impulse, it's the hunger, it's, it's, it's that which is driving us. And so it's interesting, so if we, if we wait for just a moment, so Jesus says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst, and I'm going to cut out the middle two words for just a moment, he says, because they will be satisfied. So when is, and and again, you go, this is really basic. When is hunger satisfied? When you eat. When is thirst satisfied? When you drink, right? That's not not earth-shattering for anybody yet. Are you still with me? But here, Jesus says, not just blessed are those who hunger and thirst, not just those who are in physical need of food or water, He says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for a specific thing. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, because they will be satisfied. Hungering and thirsting for righteousness. Now, if we we keep carrying this, what did we say hunger and thirst is not? It is not the actual eating and drinking. Hungering and thirsting for righteousness, then this will be our impulse. This is everything that we're geared for. I am going to do everything in my own ability to be right before the Lord on my own terms and in my own ability. That's eating and drinking on our own, trying to fulfill righteousness. That's not what Jesus says. He says, blessed are those who have the indicator, the impulse for righteousness, because then they will be satisfied. The, in, the implication of that is they'll be satisfied from outside of themselves, from outside of their own ability. You tracking with me? So he says, but hunger and thirsting for righteousness, and they will be satisfied. So if you're hungering and thirsting for righteousness, what would you have to have in order to be satisfied? Righteousness. Now, do you want me to lay the bad news on you first? Biblically, the bad news of what righteousness is or is not? I want to take you to Romans chapter 3, verses 10 through 18. And as you turn there, I'm just going to give you a really basic definition. We could probably go into it a lot more deeply. But if we were to summarize righteousness and saying righteousness is doing rightly before the Lord and with other people. So it's acting in a right manner with who God is, and then also acting rightly toward people. And the problem, that while I want to start here, the problem, the biblical problem of righteousness is laid out before us right smack dab in our faces in Romans chapter 3, verses 10 through 18. Paul starts actually in verse 9, he says that both Jews and Greeks are under sin, and he says, as it is written, here's the really bad news, none is righteous. No, not one. He emphasizes it. Not only does he emphasize it, but he's quoting Psalms. He says, no one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. 
Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now you see the bad news in this. Jesus tells his disciples... Blessed or approved in my kingdom are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. The problem is, is by ourselves, no one does that. In and of ourselves, no one does that. And in fact, what is true of us, so what is true in in our kingdom of the flesh, apart from Jesus and apart from his work, if we're left to ourselves, we're actually unrighteous. Like the opposite of righteousness. And in Romans 3, 10 through 18, just walk through this really quick with me, or I'll, I'll point out what that description looks like. What does it mean to be unrighteous? Who, what does it look like for us to be left by ourselves? What do we do if God doesn't do something for us? Now, first of all, it tells us that no one understands God and His ways. So nobody can understand God and, and who He is or what He would have us to do. Not only that, but it's not just that we don't have the understanding, but then it goes even further to say that no one seeks him. So it's not understanding, but it's not even looking for the answers. Not doing what is good or right. No one does good, not even one. So it's deceitful in speech. They're quick to do what is wrong without fear of the Lord. So that's, that's, that is what biblically is true of us in and of ourselves. And yet our impulse is to try to use the resources that we have in and of ourselves to cultivate the opposite of what we ought to get based off of what we have. It's like having a, 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 a kit laid out for you to build a race car and going okay, we're going to build a rocket ship instead. You don't have the tools to build a rocket ship. You have the tools to build a race car. Okay, In our flesh, we have the tools to do the thing that is contrary to what God wants us to do. But we think to ourselves, well, I'm going to please God with this. We can't. So, so the question that we bring back to Matthew chapter 5 and verse 6 then is, how can I hunger and thirst for something that I don't like? How can I hunger and thirst towards something that I'm not inclined to hunger and thirst towards? I don't care how hungry, well, I'm not going to say that because the Lord might show me. But I was going to say, I don't care how hungry I am, I don't want to eat mushrooms. And I realized I, I would eat mushrooms if I was that hungry. And you see why, oh, yeah, that's funny. Yeah, don't pray for me that way. <laughs> How do I hunger and thirst, though, for righteousness if, if, if I'm not righteous? How do I hunger and thirst for something that is not normal to me? It's not just a matter of discipline to say, well, I'm just only going to eat green beans until I love green beans. It's different than that. We're not even, we don't even, like the indicator isn't even telling us that we need or want righteousness. Our indicator is telling us we want the opposite of that. What we are hungering and thirsting for is the opposite of what Jesus tells us to hunger and thirst for. So then how, 
what gives? Jesus, that seems like a really unkind thing to say. Like, hey, you'll be satisfied as soon as you start acting contrary to your nature. Like, listen, Mr. T-Rex, you will be satisfied as soon as you like salad. That is essentially what he's saying. So, how is it that you and I, people with a sinful nature, apart from something that God does, how could we possibly ever want what He wants us to want? And the answer is, we don't. If, if, if left to ourselves, we don't. I want to see uh, in Isaiah chapter 55, verses 1 through 3, there's a, there's a, there's a parallel, an image, an illustration that, I, that the Lord lays out for the Old Testament people of Israel through his prophet Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 55, verses 1 through 3, just carrying this illustration of eating and drinking. And notice what the invitation of the Lord is to people. It says, Come everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread, and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good, and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me, hear that your soul may live. And I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. All right. The Lord invites people to come and eat and drink food that costs them nothing, that otherwise would cost them lots, right? The idea of coming and eating rich food and rich drink would be something that is costly to people, and yet the Lord invites them to come and eat freely without paying. But he challenges them, he says, why? Notice in verse 2, he says, why are you wasting your resources on things that don't actually satisfy what you most desperately need? And so you you take the same parallel to us. We hunger and we thirst for all kinds of things that are not righteousness. But if we just surveyed our own hearts and our own lives and our own own history with, uh, with life, I'd ask you the question, how often does us doing our own things our own way, feeding ourselves the stuff that we think we most want, how often does that produce something that lasts beyond the moment we're eating and drinking? If you take this beyond food, how often, by our own efforts, do we try to produce the right thing and get frustrated? How often do we try to do and show ourselves polished before the Lord and say, look, I'm awesome, and we realize... None of that stuff really mattered. That's the the challenge that the Lord lays on the Old Testament people of Israel. It's not like a new issue that just you and I are having that's not timeless to all people. That we spend ourselves. There's a reality here that we could spend our lives on things that don't matter. That don't satisfy and continue to look for things and feed ourselves things that don't satisfy. That don't amount to anything. And, and even in the Old Testament, the Lord is flipping it on his head and says, come and eat and drink what I give you and see that it does satisfy, see that it does produce life. But a question for you to take with you as you leave today is, is what, uh, this in a spiritual sense, what food and drink am I investing in? 
What food and drink am I hungering and thirsting for? What, what impulses am I, like, are my impulses geared towards righteousness or are they geared towards just doing my own thing, polishing my own stuff? But the question still in, in Isaiah chapter 55, he says, come, and, come to me and, and I'm going to show you this everlasting covenant. But still, the question remains, how does that work? How do we go in one door unrighteous and out another door righteous? How do I go from craving that which is contrary to righteousness to wanting righteousness? Like, how does that appetite change? How does that switch? Like, in Isaiah, it just says, well, come and, and, and buy from me. Come and taste. But I want to take you through three passages in the New Testament. It's laying out. This is what God has done to change your appetite, if you want to say that. Three, three, and they all just water fall off of each other. They're important for us to see them in sequence. The first place I want you to go is 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 18. Or it's on the screen for you if you want to follow along there. And again, just to lay the scene for us. By ourselves, right? If you start in Genesis 1, God created us to know him and to walk with him in a right relationship without any hindrance, without any, without any barriers in the way. But by Genesis chapter 3, the first people would, did exactly what you and I would do. That rather than being satisfied in the Lord's presence, knowing him and walking with him, they rebelled against him and said, I think this will satisfy. It looks good. Let's eat it. And through their sin, through their rebellion, sin entered in and has affected us to where we inherit the sin nature that leads us to being unrighteous just like they were. And so the question is, how does, how does, how will God make a way because we can't make a way? 1 Peter chapter 3 verse 18 tells us, for Christ also suffered once for sins. And notice this, the righteous for the unrighteous that he might bring us to God. So that invitation, come, come, come to me. How do, we, how do we come to him? We come to him through Jesus who died for us. Our sin, what our sin deserves is an eternal separation from a holy God. Not just an eternal separation, but it also, like, if you can imagine uh, the worst possible thing you could have done in your parents' house growing up beyond like breaking a vase. The thing that would have amounted to the worst, like probably like the, the lethal injection of parenting. You and I have done beyond that to a holy God. And, and you remember like when, when, when you, we were children and we did something that was worthy of discipline, like we knew it. Like we knew that things were messed up. We knew that as soon as mom or dad or grandma or grandpa or whoever else found out about it, that we, like the other shoe was going to drop. Like, we knew that. Spiritually, that is true of us. If we're sitting in our sin and we are, when we, we are trying to get rid of it on our own, we can expect an eternal separation, but we can also expect, like, we can expect to be cut off. But then catch this. This is uh, let this just explode in your brain for just a minute. That Jesus, who is righteous, who does hunger and thirst for righteousness, Jesus, who is perfect in every way, Jesus, who is holy in all the ways that you and I are not, Jesus, the righteous one, 
was punished for all of the unrighteous ones. Now, I know this never happened to you as a child, but you imagine when you were a child and, and your sibling had done the wrong thing and you had never done the wrong thing, right? That's why I say, like, that was, our, that was normally our, our situation, right? Our sibling had messed it up. We were innocent. How many of you willingly took the discipline for your sibling because they were the one in trouble over a small matter in the house? Like, in some cases, you might say, well, yeah, I, I, I did. I took one for the team that time. But scripturally, our sin tells us, or scripturally, we are told that our sin causes us to be enemies of God. Not just, not just like, oh, disobedient child for the moment, but like enemies of God. And Jesus, the holy, eternal Son of God, suffers and dies for enemies. We live in a society that's all about fairness. Is that fair? That's not fair. Uh, did we deserve to be let off the hook? Did we deserve for the sinless Son of God to suffer in our place? That's incredible. Like, and he suffered once for sins. Like, so, and, and the suffering that, that Peter is talking about is Jesus died on the cross. The punishment of sin being laid upon him that was owed to all of the unrighteous people. And just again, just to refresh our memories, that's all of us. Because he's the only righteous one. In order that those who are unrighteous, notice that in the, in the middle part of the verse, that he might bring us to God. Like God's desire in sending Jesus is to bring people to himself. People who don't want the right things. People who don't do the right things. People who don't think the right things. People who don't say the right things. And God says, through Jesus, this is how I'm going to bring them to myself. It's scandalous. Now if you just click back a few chapters to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Similar, similar statement, but a little bit different. Different language. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 21. I would love to spend more time in 2 Corinthians 5, but we're breaking out just one verse chunk to today. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 verse 21. He says, for our sake, and who is our? It's you and I, the unrighteous ones. For our sake, he made him, Jesus, the righteous one, to be sin. Now catch that again. God caused Jesus, the one who was without sin, to be sin. Like they, he, he caused his, like our sin to be placed on him. So that in him, the righteous one, we, the unrighteous ones, might become the righteousness of God. For our sake. Think about that. Again, the scandal of this. That God makes the righteous one 
the unrighteous in terms of the discipline and makes the unrighteous one the righteousness, the righteous one in terms of his standing before the Lord. Takes us from far off and brings us near because of Jesus. And in either of those verses, did you hear anything that said, because of how awesome or great we are? Because of the works that we bring to the table. Because of our personality traits that are so compelling to the God who made us. There's, there's no traits, there's no personalities, there's no characteristics, there's no, there's no works that are involved in that. It is Jesus coming and dying for us. So we say, okay, that functionally, that, that says this is how righteousness is made possible, but then how is it applied? Romans chapter 4, and we'll end here in Romans chapter 4. I'm going to try to, uh, again, we could spend the whole time in Romans 4, uh, but we'll, we'll pick up in verses 3 through 5 and then drop to verses 9 through 12. Uh, so we, we'll kind of work our way through the passage. Paul's talking to a, a blended church. He's talking to some who came uh, out of Judaism and some who came out of uh, kind of a... a Greek or Hellenistic, uh, not, no understanding of Scripture or of the law of the Old Testament. But he says, what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. Now let me just stop you really quick right there. So he says, Abraham in the Old Testament simply believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Abraham trusted, believed God, and he was like, Abraham, you're righteous because of that. And then he goes on to say, but the one who works, he gets wages for his work. Right? They're not a gift. That's, that's what he's owed. So, so we could, the, the, the thing that's being put on display here is belief or works. Belief counted as righteousness. Work, you're going to get a wage. What is the wage? He says, and to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. So the one who's not trying to earn, 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 but is simply trusting, is counted as righteous. But the one who is trying to eat and eat and eat and eat and produce something that's right in and of themselves apart from God, is not counted as righteous. And you drop down to verses 9 through 12, then he says, is this blessing, this blessing of righteousness by faith, is it only for the circumcised? In other words, is it only for those that are coming out of an Old Testament uh, Jewish background of walking in the law in response to the Lord? Or he says, or is it also for those who are not coming from that background, the uncircumcised? He says, for we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. So then he's asking, functionally, when was it counted to Abraham? When was Abraham counted as righteous? You think back in Genesis, was it, was it when Abraham left the land of the Chaldeans? Was it after he had Isaac? Was it after, like, when was Abraham declared righteous? He says, was it before or after he had been circumcised? He says, it wasn't after, but it was before. So it was, it was before Abraham had done anything that could be counted as, well, this is why Abraham is righteous, including faith. He says, no, it's, it's only because of faith that Abraham is counted as righteous. 
Says so he received this the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith, but it was by faith. And the purpose was to make him the father of all who believed without being circumcised, so that righteousness would be counted to them as well. And to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our Abraham had, our father Abraham had ever before he was circumcised. Now, without going like crazy on the rails of the eighth day and all of those things, talking about babies who are being circumcised, what he's talking about is two worldviews. The Jewish worldview that is like that is entered into the covenant through circumcision, and everybody else who does not have a, a place in the law because of circumcision. Right? He's he's really not that concerned with what happens to the foreskin of a baby child. What he's more concerned is, through which worldview can righteousness by faith come? And notice what he says. He says about Abraham that Abraham is the father of all who will believe, even to those who didn't come out of this worldview. So he's saying that everyone who comes in faith can be counted righteous, just as Abraham was counted righteous through faith in God's activity. I drop down to verse 16, and I encourage you to go back and read the whole chapter. It'll, make, it'll be even more fun. But he says, that is why it depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who's the father of us all. But get this picture. He says it's, it depends on faith. Righteousness depends on faith. Like when I say something depends on something else, sometimes we go like, well, that, that seems like a really light connection. What Paul is saying is like it hinges on faith. The whole thing depends on it. And then he says even more so that the promise rests on grace. You just, you just have a little mental picture of like a boat resting on a, like, on a, like it's just, it's stuck, right? The ark comes to rest on the top of Mount Ararat. Like it's resting there. It says, the whole thing depends on faith and it's resting on grace. These are the foundations of righteousness with God. Now again, I ask a question. Grace is, if grace is the free gift that we don't deserve, like, how much of God's grace can we take credit for? None. But the whole thing depends on His grace. And then faith is simply believing what He has said is true. And then Faith is also belief in action. So if what he has said is true, and walking in a manner consistent with that. So faith is different than just simply belief. Right? And I think I've used this illustration with you all before. I'll use it one more time. I did not see, when you came in this morning, I didn't see any of you do a 12-point inspection on your chair before you sat down in it. Why? Do you have that much confidence in us that we have chairs that are functional? You don't hang out with us during the week. You don't know what kind of shenanigans we're up to. Right? So a simple belief would be walking around the chair and saying, I believe it'll hold me. It's a solid chair. It's good. You didn't exercise faith until your weight went from you to chair. And I haven't seen any of you with a really concerned look on your face wondering, is this chair going to hold me through the rest of the service? Now that I've mentioned the shenanigans, you're like, will this chair hold me the rest of the service? Why? You're exercising faith. 
You're applying what you believe to be true in real time. So what is faith then in Jesus? Faith is not just believing that Jesus is the eternal Son of God. Well, it requires that. It's not just believing that he, he, he suffered in the place of sinners. It requires that. It's not just believing that he died on the cross, was buried in the tomb, and on the third day he rose again, and examining it from a distance and saying, I, I believe all of that is true. That's belief. Where does faith come in? When you actually entrust all of who you are to him and say, I believe it to the point that that's what I'm doing now. This is gonna, he is now going to influence all of my thoughts, all of my actions. He is the one through whom I will filter everything else I see because I believe him. And now I'm acting in accord with who he is. And then Paul finishes up in verses 23 through 25, Romans 4. This is just imagine, like he's talking about you. It says, but the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It says, it will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Also, we, we, can, we can say really great things about Abraham, he says, but it's not just for Abraham that he says that he believed and it was counted to him as righteousness. The promise is for everyone still today who believes him and trusts him. And you go, okay, well, what does that have to do with hungering and thirsting for righteousness? Here's what, like, it's in some mysterious thing, right? When our faith is placed in Jesus... And the Holy Spirit enters into our lives. He creates a hunger and a thirst for the things of the Lord that were not there before. And it's the Lord who satisfies that desire and that pull and that push towards the things of the Lord. You and I can't manufacture that in us. We, we, we can sit in our heads and we can say, well, I just need to love Jesus more. And then we say, well, if I just do this, I'll love Jesus more. Or I'll do this activity, then I'll love Jesus more. If I go to church more often, then I'll love Jesus more. But it's different. Instead of that, it's the, the, a hunger and a thirst for those things because he has given them to us as a gift. But he's already given us his righteousness in Jesus. And now, so the question is, are you, and this is a weird question, this is one that, that drove a bunch of Jesus' disciples to walk away from him. Are you feasting and drinking Jesus? Right, like a bunch of people left Jesus like, he wants us to eat and drink, like eat his body and drink his blood. That's weird. And they left, right? And Jesus even turned to his disciples and said, you guys going to leave me too? And they said, where else can we go? You alone have the words of eternal life. In other words, like we're hungry for the things that you provide. We can't find it anywhere else. So the question for us this morning, are we, are we eating and feasting and drinking on the person and the work of Jesus? Jesus is the goal. He is not just the means by which the ticket gets punched that we go to heaven. Like He is the goal of this life. He's, he is the one for whom we hunger and thirst. We want more of him in our lives. Is that true of us? Whose work are we relying on? Are we resting on 
Like as an established thing, we're resting on his gift of grace that he has given to us through his death, burial, and resurrection. Or are we trying to do all of the things that religious people do in order to look right before the Lord and bypassing where faith ought to rest? It seems backwards to say he's the one who develops the appetite in us. But he invites us first. He says, come and eat and drink what you can't buy, what I can give you. Stop investing in the things that don't satisfy. Come and live in him. For blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. 